Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Tanya Lerman about her new book, How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others. Lerman is the Watkins University professor at Stanford University, where she teaches psychology and anthropology, and her work is fascinating. She's interested in what seems like an impossible question— How is it that people from vastly different religions and spiritual traditions experience their gods and their spirits as real? She goes about answering this question in a very straightforward way. Well, asked Lerman, what do their believers do, and what do they learn to do, such that they might turn to you and say, Oh yes, God is real. I just had coffee with God this morning. Lerman's book is keenly argued and lucidly written, which is to say that Lerman is not just a brilliant scholar, but also an engaging writer and speaker, which makes her book, and Lerman herself, all the more of a pleasure to encounter. Tanya Lerman, welcome to the New Books Network. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And you have this new book, How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others. And it is, it is fascinating. It's wonderful. I started into it. And, and I guess I do have a question that, that might take us a little bit astray, but I'm excited to go a little bit astray. It's that you have, you have this wonderful writing style. It's clear. It's vivid. It's to the point. And when I read this, at some points, I felt as though I might be reading almost a work of, of new journalism or, or something that might appear in the New Yorker where, you know, they send somebody like Susan Orleans to, to go, you know, meet Super Bowl fans or something like that. And you get this really intricate kind of profiling that's happening. Um, and of course, you add this whole other dimension of, of analysis and insight. But I'm just wondering about, about your process when you go from your field work to the page and, and what that how that works for you because your writing style is is so vivid and engaging and i want listeners to know because they're going to get fascinated by what you have to say that the book is going to be just as exciting to read on the page thank you so i guess what i do i'm doing this now in my next book i i'll go someplace and i remember you know i talk a little bit about this work in in the book and i'll draw for from it in my next book. But like, I'll go to Chennai for, for a month. So Chennai, Tamil Nadu, South India. And I know what I want to do. I want to talk to people who talk to God, or I want to talk to people who hear voices and uh, for my new book and they're, and they're ill. And so I, I have this kind of you know, schedule of people I'm going to meet and spend time with And I'll fill my days doing stuff. And then I come home at night to the hotel and I write. And I take these 
detailed notes in which I'm just describing what I thought I saw, what I remembered, things I thought I ought to think about when I pull this together. And then I've got all these recordings. So I write, you know, I'll leave after a month with 100 single space pages, get on the plane, come back, and I've uploaded all of these interviews. So I've got like, if I just spent a month in Chennai, I mean, I used to work differently when I was younger, but these days I'm likely to have a month and not a year. And so I have this incredibly intense interactive time where I've got these, these, these dense notes. But then I've, all, I've got all these interviews. I, I, I get the interviews transcribed. And then I sit with the uh, interviews piled around me and the field notes and the books. And I outline. And I outline a lot. And they're usually kind of pathetic outlines. And, you know, and, and I struggle. So, I mean, I remember an editor once telling me that she had two kinds of writers. She had, if you'll pardon the description, jugs of cream and balls of clay. There were people who would think a lot and be really, you know, and they, they sort of get a voice in their head and then they would just write it down. And then there were people who would take bits and pieces and they'd pull things together and they'd revise and they'd pull apart and then they'd take a little bit of this and put it over there and then they'd circle back and then they'd try to see whether it fit. I'm definitely a ball of clay. I will draft and then, you know, I have this very clear sense that it's dreadful. And then I, you know, and I can't believe it's so dreadful. And then I, I you know, revise it and I pull it around and... I mean, it's funny, I used to do these short pieces for the New York Times, and those I just wrote. 800 words I can write. And, you know, and you work with it, and you revise it, and but that's, I can do that in three to five hours. But with a chapter, I've got this, you know, these, these chunks, and I move them, and I, and I, and it, it, anyway, I get agitated and involved, and there are pieces of paper all over the place. And somehow all that coheres. Well, tell me a little bit about titles. I think that's a, a wonderful way in. Um, you know, your title is so lucid, How God Becomes Real. But then there's that immediate kind of mental glitch, at least as a, an American Westerner of, no, wait, becoming, gods don't become real, right? It, 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 there's a kind of default assumption that God is either real or not, but that that is not a, a changing ontological state. Um, and so this, this very straightforward title suddenly gets you as a reader thinking about what the argument of the book is going to be. Cool. I mean, I really wanted and want not to push the question of whether God is real. And that's partly because I, like, it's above my pay grade to answer that question. I don't think my methods answer that question. I don't have a good answer to that question. And also, I kind of think that when it's framed, when you frame religion in terms of belief, is or is not, then you're immediately confronted with the question of what makes these other people foolish? Why don't they take God seriously? Or why do they take God seriously? Or something. Uh, and, you know, so you, you're really confronting the question of why some people 
do things that other people think are wrong. And I guess for me, there was, this, there was a real moment in church one day when it suddenly occurred to me that people were there in part to remind themselves to take God seriously. And, you know, and I spent all this time in different kinds of churches. And, you know, and I can see that the people I spend time with, you know, they're not fools. They're not confused about why somebody should be skeptical about an invisible being. They're not not noticing that prayers, you know, don't always work. And so they're, you know, they're very, they're very much like secular observers. And so to me, the question really became, well, this, this is about keeping God real. It's not about whether you do or do not believe in something, which is, of course, relevant. But it's more that I saw that, you know, what we could call believers, they got a sense of God. They've got a, a model, a proposition, a view of the world in which they're, in which God or gods operate. But that has to kind of, you know, be brought into conversation with the world they live in. It's got to sort of remap their ordinary experience of the world. I mean, one of, as I began to think about this, I began to notice that you know, people are quite happy to say that you know, the Christian God can do anything. And I used to spend a lot of time with the evangelicals, and they're quite articulate about how powerful God is. But they never ask God to feed the dog. They never ask God to write a paper. They, and in fact, what I see is that they often kind of forget about God. It doesn't mean that they don't believe in God, but they, you know, they, 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 they want to be good Christians, and they go to church, and they remind themselves to be like Christ, and then they get into the car and yell at their kids, as somebody once said to me. And so I saw that the struggle was more salient, having something close, uh, having something, having the idea of God really matter. And that's what I mean by real, kind of sort of relevant, powerful, emotionally resonant, orienting the way that somebody looks at the world. And I think that's, something that people of faith face everywhere. They face it more when the God is, in effect, more unbelievable. I mean, if you have um, a, uh, a mean and nasty God, in some sense it's a little easier to take seriously because you've got this Pascal Dilemmas problem. You know, you're afraid if you don't take it seriously, you'll be schmushed. But if you have, particularly if you've got the God that's so common at the... 21st century, which is a God who is kind of wonderful, loving. You know, I used to think of this, this, the God of the evangelicals I knew as a kind of teddy bear in the sky, always loving, never condemning, very, you know, always available. People need to persuade themselves that that God is present. And so that's what I wanted to write about. And you have a a very interesting observation. You say that that the way that happens is not the way that, say, I might be inclined to think about it, which would be through, you know, what is the belief system that's going to make this God real for me? Or what is the theology? But it's about religious practice. It's yeah. about a kind of doing that's ultimately more powerful in what you would at one point call real making. Mm -hmm. um, 
than a particular set of beliefs, which I think, especially, you know, in the secular press, seems to be representative of a lot of these cultures of believers. Here's what they believe, as though it's a set of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of faith much more as a series of practices that people use to persuade themselves that this invisible other cares for them, is involved with their life, is present. And I saw people do things. I saw them, you know, I mean, some of it is is belief-like in that you have, I saw that people would kind of create what I called a paracosm, a sort of shared imagine, shared space of the imagination. I don't want to call it imaginary, but a, uh, a representation of the world that's a little fiction-like because it's not like the world that we see before us. You can't see the invisible being. And so people have to have a sense of, okay, if, if, if a God is present, you know, who are the people, who, who are the community, who's the community that this God is present to? How do we know that God is present? What do we do to make God present? And what are the signs that God is interacting? How do I know that God is talking to me and hearing what I say? And I saw that people, you know, I've spent time in all these different religions. I mean, most recently in evangelical Christianity, but in Balchivash uh, Judaism, sort of like an Orthodox Judaism for, for, for new, newly Orthodox Jews, and in Santeria, which is this you know, spirit possession practice, and in modern magic and witchcraft, and in Indian Zoroastrianism, and uh, you know, been to evangelical communities in a couple of parts of the world, and West Africa and Accra and in South India and Chennai. And I saw that they, you know, they had a kind of a set of ideas about how you became a member of this world in which there was this being who interacted in a way of, you know, seeing, identifying ways in your body that you would know that God was responding, ways to pick God's thoughts out of the jumble of thoughts in your mind. So that was one piece of it. How do you... You know, how do you represent that? And then the more vivid that that world, the more, in a sense, the more fiction-like, the richer the 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 stories and the and the sharing of, of ideas, the more that works for people. I and mean, it's one of the reasons that you know um, house groups are so effective for people. They sit together and they're reading. These are evangelicals. They're reading, you know, some book of the Bible like Judges and they they and which can be very dry and they're retelling that story in terms of you know their their experience that afternoon um, I remember reading the prodigal son, son with a group of Christians and having somebody say to me oh this is what happened to me today at work and you know or or you know my, my magicians in London um, they would get all absorbed with some god or a goddess and I, I knew a, a woman who had set aside a room in her house what might have been a bedroom she must have had a hundred images of different goddesses you know the goddess of the winter and the goddess of the spring and the goddess of the summer and she knew all these stories about them and so and so, so as she went through her day she could you know reach out for 
who she thought Artemis was and how she thought Artemis was responding and, you know, when Caradun was relevant and, you know, was this a Hecate experience? So there's this rich kind of story framing that you, that you need to make this work. But I saw that people would also, in effect, practice the presence of God so that they would, you know, in telling these stories, they were sort of using this um, mental capacity to represent, to make that God feel more present. And, and I could see, actually, this is another thing that I do, and I, I sort of do this experimental work in which I try to demonstrate that training changes people. And I could see that certain kinds of people were more likely to have vivid, a vivid sense of God's presence. And the more they prayed or the more they, you know, the more they, they sort of uh, took, set aside and half an hour to fly to a garden in the sky and build a place where the God might come, the more they would experience that God is vividly present. Um, and there was a story, you know, there I could see that they were more likely to have that sense of vividness if, if they kind of thought about, if they, if, if they thought their mind was open to the presence of God. And I also saw that they would start to have these experiences of the God or the, or the Spirit, and then those were terribly important. They would feel... God's hand on their shoulder, they would feel uh, wrapped in the presence of the Holy Spirit, they would feel uh, the authority of God come through their bodies as they were praying, they, uh, they, they, they would sort of have the sense that God was, was thick or thin, or, or um, you know, they would feel a sense of energy. And sometimes they had more intense and vivid experiences, they would feel, they would you know, hear God speak in a way they could hear almost with their ears, and sometimes really with their ears. Or they would see the wingtip of an angel, and or they would they would feel, um, you know, that they, they would really feel the pressure of a hand on their shoulder. And I could see that those experiences were more likely the more time they spent doing what you might call praying, whatever it is in in, in that religion's vocabulary. And again, I could see this was more likely to happen to some people than others. But once that started to happen to people, they would, in effect, kindle a sense of God's presence. They would sort of, you know, they would have, have this almost personal, intimate, powerful pathway to this near sensory presence of God in the world for them. And that was powerful. It created a relationship. And the relationship was, you know, the more time I spent talking to people, the more it felt like that relationship was kind of like a human relationship. And obviously there are ways in which it's different. But they, it seemed that for many people, the more present God became for them, however they understood God, the more vividly interactive God became for them. And the more God became, you know, more people would say things like, oh, God wants me to go do a ritual on this island, but, you know, I really don't have time this weekend, so it's going to have to wait. Or, you know, they would talk to, to God about where they were going to go on vacation or what they should cook for dinner or, you know, all, 
it, it became more that this this being was not abstract, but a kind of daily interaction. And I thought it had some of the effects of human interaction. You, know, the, you, you were changed through a marriage or through a relationship. And I thought I could see that in these experiences as well. One of the things that, I mean, there's so much that's fascinating about what you said, but one of the, the things that was striking to me in reading the book is thinking about how these possibilities open up. And you you spend a lot of time kind of showing how in-between spaces begin to become possible for people so that, you know, when you were talking about stories, the way in which people coming to believe start to graft their own life into the story and the story onto their own life. And it's mm -hmm. not the story is there and I am here. Mm -hmm. um, or the way their bodies become experiential such that they are open to what they perceive as the presence of the invisible other. Mm -hmm. um, and the theory of the mind changes or, or the practice or the phenomenology of it so that, so that your mind is not, you know, an enlightenment monadic self-contained thing um, fended off, but instead it becomes open. And so there's this real shift in almost, you know, the cosmology, the ontology, I don't know, um, in which you're suddenly inhabiting or living in a space that is fundamentally different, perhaps from the one that we, you know, default to, or the one that you would find in kind of, you know, post-enlightenment rationality or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I mean, I think that what I see is that, you know, Americans, middle-class book-reading Americans, tend to imagine the mind as the source of their identity, but also as immaterial and as kind of not connected to the world at all. And I'm not protesting that as a model of how thought actually works. But I, what I did see is that people, is, is, is what, I, what, what I do think of as this kind of in-between space between things more mental and things more immaterial and things more material, things that happen more in the domain of thought and things that happen more in the domain of tables and chairs. And the more somebody is able to, well, I think what I saw is that a lot of experiences that become experiences of invisible others are sort of betwixt and between. So people will say, oh, I think I, you know, God spoke to me and I, I, I know it wasn't inside my head, but I'm not sure I heard it with my ears or I felt that. And it wasn't just, it, I, I know that I didn't touch my, touch my hand to my shoulder. Um, and I'm not sure how heavy it felt, but it didn't feel like me. So there's a sort of domain of the, the, the not me that's sort of between you and the world. Um, and when people think of their mind in, as, as open, in that way, they're more likely to have those experiences. This is actually something I, I was recently running this 
big project in five parts of the world, in uh, Ghana and China and Thailand and Vanuatu in the United States. And we talked to deeply religious people and we talked to secular people and we talked to university kids in universities and we talked to people on the street and members of the general population and we did long form interviews and short face-to-face -face interviews and surveys and didn't matter how we asked the question there was a relationship between the way people talked about what thought could do whether thought could like poison somebody else's food or whether thought could um, help somebody win the lottery and whether they had vividly felt God's presence and it wasn't because thinking about thought is the same as spiritual experience. You could sort of show that in the way people answered the questions and the way that there were these different statistical relationships between the way people talked about beliefs about the mind and experiences in the body. It seemed more that if people imagine the mind is open, they were more likely to experience this kind of vivid in-between and feel an external other kind of in the space uh, in the space of their minds, in the space between the mind and the world, in the, in, in the presence of their lives. And that's, I just think that's really cool. And it's, yeah. and it's interesting because one of the things I think you can see is that on average Americans who tend to think of their minds as be, being super important but really immaterial and sort of supernaturally you know stunted ineffective um they actually you can see that they have a less vivid experience of god they also turn out to have a worse psychosis but that's sort of the next book mm. i i wonder what the role of of language plays in that i mean that's a kind of you're describing an implicit theory of mind mm -hmm. um and as I was reading your book, I was thinking about, you know, with, with the American English that I'm stuck in, the kind of pragmatic 20, 21st century, I can talk about intuitions or sensing something or a presence. Um, I had a, a great conversation once with a, a Mayan, a Tutuheel shaman, who was talking about in, in Tutuheel, you don't really, you would never use the word it for anything. So trees would would be a he or a she or a father or a mother or and and just that shift in language, everything would become animate in the way that language would bring it to life for you. Mm -hmm. um, what did you find as you know, as as you're moving across all of these different cultures? Are there is there a degree of richness or poverty in the very language by which people can articulate these kinds of experiences? That's such a great question. Um, English is a, is a world of, of, of nouns and, and things. Um, you know, I, I don't have, it's a really great question. I don't have the kind of answer that my linguistic linguistically sophisticated anthropological colleagues would give. But I would say that there's a story about the way that people imagine the word to relate to the world and whether they 
imagine there's a relationship or not, whether they're, in a sense, words can tug on the word world in particular ways. I also think that I see a vividness of language in that makes things possible. So one of the things that I saw that's true around the world and that I talk about in this, in this book is that people who are able to get caught up in their imagination um, are more able to have vivid experiences of gods and spirits. And writers are often quite high in absorption. They will feel that their um, that their their characters will become invisible others. Charles Dickens used to talk about his characters talking back to him. People will talk about you know, creative. You're, you 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 live in a world of creative writers. Sometimes creative writers will talk about their their characters telling them what they should write on the page. And I think that capacity is connected. It's sort of in the same domain as the capacity for a vivid experience of faith. You thank you for for this. I'm just enjoying this conversation so much. I'm going to take a beat. Otherwise, I'll say thank you after every answer that you give. But um, there, there are two wonderful things that come up in the book um, that I wonder if you would elaborate on that you just touched on. And, and one is about kind of our, you know, 21st century, you know, reduction of the imagination as something that means lesser. And that that is not even something that has existed in the West, um, you know, in the tradition that we've inherited. And the other is this idea of absorption that mm -hmm. you just used, which is a fascinating uh, part of the book. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that as well. Um, but as somebody who is a creative writer, um, I, I loved your, your presentation of the imagination, um, which I, I don't think is is biased in the way that we, you know, hear it um, just in casual discourse. So all humans distinguish between stuff in the mind and stuff in the world. That's something else that we did in this recent big project. So, I mean, all humans will distinguish between consciousness, the capacity to be aware of, and tables and chairs and trees and dogs and things to be aware of. But, you know, the, the Enlightenment tradition really draws that line in the sand really sharply. And there's a real sense that it, what is true is in the tables and the chairs and the stuff of the world and that you can have ideas about what's true, but what, what's, what's real is that outer stuff. So absorption is, I think, a blurring of the boundaries. Absorption, you know, you, you find out whether somebody is high in absorption because you give them a list of 34 questions or further 34 statements and you say, is this true or false for you? And the, and the statements are things like, sometimes I experience things the way I did as a child. If I want, I can, um, I can turn noise into music. Um, if I want, I can make my body so heavy that I couldn't move it even if I intended to. Sort of stuff like that. Um, and it's 
It's a really interesting skill. It seems to pick up people who want to get caught up in, you know, in, in, in walking through the forest. Uh, they want to be caught up in their um, in their minds and in in poetry. Um, there's one of the statements is I can be moved by eloquent or poetic language. And it's just really striking to me that so consistently from study to study to study, the more highly people score themselves in absorption, the more they're likely to say that they experience God as a person, they're more likely to say they have a back and forth with God, they're more likely to say they've heard God's voice in a way they can hear it with their ears, they're not crazy, the more they'll say that they saw something or felt something that, you know, wasn't there in a, in a material way. This is also a domain. High absorption people are writers and dancers and artists. And I think it's the capacity to make something or to be caught up in something that is um, sort of betwixt and between between you and the world, between, you know, somewhere on that boundary between the mind domain and the tables and chairs domain. And if you can do that and live there, then the world is sort of more malleable. You can sort of, you can free yourself from the world to some extent. I mean, it has its costs. Um, you know, if you can be if, if, if you can create a God who loves you, you can also create a God who torments you. And that's its own risk. But I'm really struck that absorption seems to capture something about the human capacity to represent, to imagine something different from the world before them. And to, in effect, to keep the world alive. Uh, the great anthropologist, um, kind of an odd anthropologist, but it's somebody called Lucy and Levy Brule used to talk about participation, that people um, used to think about this as primitive people. They, they participated in their world. They thought that, you know, you could step on somebody's shadow and hurt them, um, or that a name would affect somebody's body. And then at the end of his life, Levy Brule said, no, this is also true of Catholics. There's really a difference between people of faith and people not of faith, or people not thinking in a, in a faithful way. And there's something we don't really understand, but is deeply true about the human capacity to make the imagination feel vivid, to feel that the world is alive and responsive and interactive, and that changes your experience enables you to happen to have a relationship with a, with a spirit or a God. And that relationship, again, can change you to some extent the way a human relationship can change you. You just have a little more control over it. So I, I want to give you a, a kind of articulation and see, see where you come down on it. Um, so, so let's say you're coming from the perspective of a disbeliever. I know you are, are very careful to bracket whether or not that God is real, but, and, and, um, so you, you have a, something like, okay, I, for me, God is not real. I am a disbeliever. And 
Therefore, when you describe absorption in the imagination, I think to myself, well, of course, someone with those proclivities would be likely to believe in imaginary people and invisible others, right? So that, that might be one part of it. And the other part might be if you were coming from a perspective of belief and you, you would say then something perhaps more like, well, then absorption and imagination are actually very valuable capacities because they bring you into the possibility of relationship with gods and spirits. Mm -hmm. I think both things are true. So again, this is why I think it's important for me not to pass judgment about whether God exists is exists or whether this God exists, but that God doesn't exist. What is the correct characterization of God? But more see that there's this powerful human capacity to create. And this creation, do people genuinely come to feel that there are invisible others interacting with them? And that changes them. That's powerful. So the, uh, I mean, the sometimes people have People in a church have been frightened by the idea of absorption because they say, oh, you know, the more you say that skill and talent are involved in creating God, the more it feels like God is, isn't real. But when I uh, first began to talk about these ideas, I remember a church that was like so interested because they were a church that really this was the Vineyard Church, and they had this, it was founded by somebody who would talk about doing the stuff. You know, we're going to really, we're going to use the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be able to heal, and we're going to just do the stuff. We're going to have all these cool spiritual experiences that, you know, people have been afraid to have before now. And so this, this is called Charismatic Christianity. And this particular church was very enthusiastic about these experiences. And it modeled a God that could be, that everybody could feel this way, that everybody could talk to God. Everybody would experience God as talking back. My experience of spending time in the church was that about a quarter of the people couldn't do that. And they were, they could participate in the life of the church. They would become the accountants. They would become, you know, they would do all sorts of things. They could feel like people of faith. They always felt, or they often felt like they weren't, quite as good as other people, that God didn't love them as much as he loved other people. And that was kind of hard for them. And I remember this church, the leader of the church saying, wow, this is, this is a great insight because we have been modeling a God that's really available to some people, but not to all people. So I think it's, um, you know, I, you can approach the faith experiences from a secular perspective and say, these are just what humans do, or you can approach them from a faithful perspective and say that, you know, this is what, you know, these are tools people can make to, can use to make God real. But I think what's really important that I can say as an anthropologist is that it's about so much, faith is about so much, so much more than belief that it's about what people do and what they experience and how they manage their experience and how they create this relationship with God that is really a very fruitful and um, kind of Im 
important part of the faith practice that I think if you're secular, you sometimes miss. I think that when people are secular, they, they can really focus on the yes-no question or the logic question. I mean, I, I certainly, that, that, that I, I resonate with those questions. Um, I resonate with um, some of the political questions people bring to certain kinds of faith in the United States today. But I think that that discounts the very real experience of um, the sense that there's an invisible person who's talking back to you and how surprising that experience can be for people. It's not, you know, people aren't, you create a relationship. And the relationship feels real and it feels real because the invisible being that's talking to you is not just acting out of your, you know, your imagination of them. They, they, you, the person of faith, when they have this vivid relationship with God, they, they really have a sense that the invisible being is autonomous, is talking back, feels independent. And that is, um, that's terribly important. And I think you tend to miss it if you think about faith just in terms of belief. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about the work that this book is going to do in the world. And I want to ask you about that by way of a kind of moment I had in reading it. And, and I was just enjoying the, the kind of intellectual breadth and insight that was taking place. And then I thought, wait a second. If I, if I looked at this book from a spiritual perspective, from a believer's perspective, it would almost or it could almost become a guide, right? Like, okay, I'm interested in having a relationship with God. How am I going to do that? Well, step one, I've got to realize that, that faith is not easy in this particular moment. And then step two, I've got to realize there are some really good stories that I'm going to need. And then I'm going to need to cultivate my talent and training. And then I'm going to need to change my theory of mind. And then I'm going to have to start kindling this response. And, and what's going to happen if I do that? I'm going to have a different relationship with my thoughts and I'm going to start to have a relationship with gods and spirits. And so I was imagining, you know, the pastor of my mind thinking, Oh wait, there are so many good insights in here that will help me in my church or in my work. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, you're going to have a whole set of different readers for this book as you've had for your, for your previous work. Um, and so as this makes its way out into the world, and you've, you've shared with me that there's a, a review in the New Yorker and the Times has done some, some reviews of it. Um, what is the work that you hope it will do? I know, you, you know you're writing to both your colleagues in anthropology, um, but you are one of those rare intellectuals who can write clearly for an intelligent and interested audience and also write for scholars at the same time. So I'm just curious about your hopes for the book now that it's it's out there. Oh, I don't know. That's such a good question. Um, I mean, I mostly wanted to set down what I had learned from spending time in different faiths in the last few decades. So I wanted to, I think I, I, I've seen sort of the same story in all of these different you know, in, in magic and in Zoroastrianism and in 
Judaism and Santeria and Christianity. And I'd kind of wanted to say what I saw that stretched across all of them and sort of summarized. These are, these are the lessons I take about, you know, I, I, I really see that, that gods and spirits become person-like. People help to create them. They interact with them. That interaction changes them. The interaction can change them, even if they don't believe in the gods or spirits. I think that prayer is a very powerful technique for interacting with the, the thoughts in your mind. So mostly I just wanted to spell that out. And now I find myself sort of um, trying to think about what I want people of faith to take from it. And and I, I start, start I'm starting to be asked to talk to churches and um, and I find myself saying yes if it's a conversation where, where I'm not giving a sermon when I'm just talking and again I, I sort of I don't know I, I sort of see myself as in in the tradition of William James um, not prescriptive but descriptive I just see these techniques and I think they are useful uh, I think they can work. I think, uh, you know, one of the challenges for any faith practice is the content of what is in that understanding, because that content also has consequences. Um, and, you know, um, but so I, I don't have a good answer to that question. That's a great sure. question. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have maybe one or two others um, being mindful of, of your generous generosity with your time. Um, so the book has been around my house for the, the last couple of weeks. And uh, my wife, who is a, a spiritual writer who's written a, a couple of books on Emily Dickinson and prayer, um, she's been picking it up and, you know, flip flip. And um, I've promised to share it and will. And uh, but but here's a question that she, she says. You know, ask her, ask her how how Donald Trump becomes real. Oh, ask her about this moment, about the the kind of elevation and reification, and um, it's been such a huge part of of this our our particular moment, um, but also just right now. I'm curious if if you have any thoughts about you know how how a non invisible other. Um, and in this case, the president takes on this divine status. Do you see the same sorts of practices and techniques taking place? What do you see when you look at that? I am terrified by QAnon. I think that QAnon works for some of the same reasons that God, God's become real for people. Uh, that, you know, there's this, there's these rich stories, this representation, there's this, um, you know, you, you learn so much, you make sense of your life, you interact with other people, you sort of talk, you, you settle, you, you solve the puzzle, the, 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 the solution become, feels a little more real to you. I don't know if Donald Trump is talking to people um, in the privacy of their room, but uh, I do think that um, in order to understand the phenomenon of Trump, you have to be able to put him in the context of this, uh, of a fantasy-rich, 
paracosm. So I, I do think that you know, a, a conservative person uh, who is a Christian can quite reasonably, um, I mean, it's a very reasonable choice to have voted for Donald Trump if you wanted to change the courts. He did that. Um, how do you make sense of Donald Trump, the person? Well, many people who voted for him, or at least a chunk of people who voted for him, did so by making sense of, you know, the King David. So King David was a badly behaved king, a badly behaved human, who was, um, you know, coveted another man's wife, killed the man to get his wife, and he became the vehicle for God. And if you, in fact, when you read the the Bible, there are many imperfect vehicles um, through which God speaks. Ezekiel is another one. Ezekiel, if I were to read Ezekiel with a clinical eye, I might wonder whether Ezekiel was psychotic. He has a lot of bizarre ideas. He has, you know, one can, do, you know, there are many imperfect vehicles in the, um, in the biblical text. So that's part of the story that you know, Rick Santorum and others laid out this account of Trump is a kind of King David, an imperfect vehicle. But also, I think the way in which that the core supporters have been able to live within a world that has become, seems to be increasingly detached from the war, from the facts of the world as we know it, you know, is a story of the creation of this shared, imagined universe which has all these rules and, you know, all these expectations for how things should be. And they're able, because they are so devoted and they're practicing so hard, for them, they're able to, it feels as if they're able to collapse the, um, the relationship between the world of the imagination and the world as it is. I think one of the deeply fascinating questions to me is how people hold the world as it is, and the world in their minds as it should be. And so what I see is that um, many people sort of, sort of live, manage to understand that the world as it is has demands the world as it should be, the world that, of the paracosm, that the world that is kind of the, the stories of, of God, that kind of hold them so that they, to some sense, do different things. So again, they're actually feeding the God, the, the dog. They're not expecting God to feed the dog. They, um, you know, they're studying for the exam. They're not expecting God to take the exam. But when they're taking the exam, they might be calmer and more effective because they are experiencing God uh, supporting them while they're taking the exam. The more people are unable to navigate that difference, the more it looks like something more like psychiatric illness. Um, and there's a story to tell about an imagined world that is hurtful, a God that is judgmental and demanding and mean, a God that perhaps doesn't like your sexuality or your political views, but is by, you know, but might be internalized within you and causes you, you know, untold trouble. Um, but there's also the, you know, the person who does not distinguish between 
the world that you want and the world as it is. And I am struck that um, that gets crazier and crazier. And I am actually deeply curious about what it is like to be somebody who is so committed to uh, Donald Trump's victory, Donald Trump's godliness, Donald Trump's, you know, superhero quality. I'm, anyway, I'm, I'm curious about that. I think it's a little scary. And I'm struck by the fact that some faiths demand of one that you violate the expectations of the world as it is. So Christian science, it's a kind of faith that demands that you be have such firm convictions that you deny the value of medical care or snake handling, you know, so you're, Eric, I think you're in, um, in Ohio someplace, mm -hmm. the Appalachian border, and so that you're in a world in which there are still snake handling groups where people read the end of uh, the Gospel of Mark, and they see that a person of faith should be able to pick up snakes, and so they, uh, people become kind of, filled with the passion of the Holy Spirit and they pick up a copperhead or a rattler and, you know, people die on a pretty, not, not on a routine basis, but people die. And that is, in effect, a faith commitment that wants to override the world as it is. Um, and that can have caustic, you know, consequences. My father tells the story of being you know, a, a young adolescent and going to the, the Pentecostal church, I think, where this was happening. And he and his you know, brother would peek in the window to watch them handle the snakes as it was taking place. So, yeah, um, we, we are in that part of the country. Well, you, you had mentioned when we started that there's a new book ahead um, where you're going to work, it sounds like, with people in illness. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what's ahead and what we might expect. So I've been spending you know, uh, the last three to four decades studying faiths, but increasingly I've also been studying psychosis. So people who hear the voice of God, but they look like they're psychiatrically ill. And in fact, I mean, I feel very quite comfortable with the idea that they're are real psychiatric illnesses in which people have these vivid experiences. And I've decided to uh, really pull the two halves of my life together and explore the question of how we understand voices. What's the difference between hearing God's voice and hearing a psychotic voice? And how, is it possible to pull these apart? Are there different kinds of voices? How, do, how are, is somebody able to hear, like I'm actually going to address uh, these practical questions more immediately. How do you become somebody who can manage your relationship with more positive, um, invisible others, whether you think those invisible others are supernaturally real or not, and minimize your relationship with caustic, um, harsh, invisible others? Sort of the, there's you know the voices of psychosis are the most dramatic example, but 
And we all struggle with harsh internal critical voices. And so this book um, looks at the, you know, how people hear voices, what's, you know, about the relationship between audible voices and interior voices, what we know about managing them, what we know about the difference between religion and between faith and madness, and um, all of that. Well, as somebody who has spent countless hours mentoring young writers and having discussions about the voices in their head that prevent them from either writing or realizing the ambition to become a writer, I'll hope you'll come back and talk to us when that book comes out. Thank you. I'd love to. Uh, Tanya Lerman, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to be able to speak with you. It's been great. I really appreciate it. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Tanya Lerman about her book, How God Becomes Real, Kindling the Presence of Invisible Others, on the New Books Network.